the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. We are glad to have you with us. It has been an extraordinary day if you've had at least... Part of your attention poised on Washington, D.C. We're going to try to cover some of the developments that really began at about 3.30 our time. Uh, We've already been dealing with the Comey memos, and that's uh, certainly uh, captured the attention of many across the country. Today, the New York Times allegedly has a memo from uh, the uh, former um, director who suggests that the the president asked him to drop the investigation into his uh, – his uh, oh, into – I can't even think of his name. The FBI director, um, Flynn. Thank you very much, Clark. I appreciate that. We're going to get into all of that as much as is possible in just a few moments. So if you'd like to try to sort through what the allegations are, we don't have the response yet. So far, the White House has been uh, veritably uh, silent on the subject. So we'll get into that in just a few moments. We're also going to talk with uh, Jed Metafind. He is the author of Becoming Home. It's part of the Frames series, Adoption, Foster Care, and Mentoring, Living Out God's Heart for Orphans. If you've ever thought about adopting or um, being involved in foster care or mentoring, this is a guide to help you through that. We're going to talk about uh, what the situation is all across the country as it relates to the need for this kind of care for uh, for young uh, kids. So I'm looking forward to that conversation. And I should mention Mr. Metafine. Um, has uh, is the founder, the president, rather, of the Christian Alliance for Orphans. Um, they unite more than 150 respected organizations that work together to inspire and equip Christians uh, to engage in uh, ministering to them. So he'll be joining us later this hour. We're also going to talk with Bruce Klingner. He specializes in Korean and Japanese affairs as a senior research fellow for Northeast Asia at the Heritage Foundation. We're going to talk about the uh, the fact that cybersecurity researchers are saying that uh, they may be able to link this latest um, global cyber attack to North Korea. We'll also talk with Rachel, uh, Rachel Alexander. She's a former Arizona assistant attorney general. We're going to talk about the U.S. Attorney General Jeff Sessions' revised criminal drug charging policy announced earlier this week. And we'll talk with Don Marie Perez. She's the executive director of Stand Up Girl Foundation. They have an event coming up uh, this week, and we'll give you all the important details on that. Well, the New York Times is reporting, and this just broke uh, late this afternoon, that President Trump asked FBI Director James Comey to shut down the federal investigation into Mr. Trump's former national security advisor, Michael Flynn, whose name I struggled with just a few moments ago, in an Oval Office meeting back in February. That's according to a memo that Mr. Comey wrote shortly after the meeting. Now, many are, are raising the question, why didn't Mr. Comey report it? Why didn't he resign? A lot of questions unanswered. But according to the memo, I hope you can't 
let this go or you can let this go, the president told Mr. Comey. The existence of Mr. Trump's request is the clearest evidence that the president has tried to directly influence the Justice Department and FBI investigation into links between Mr. Trump's associates and Russia. This according to the New York Times. Now they go on to write that Mr. Comey wrote the memo detailing his conversation with the president immediately after the meeting, which took place the day after Mr. Flynn resigned. According to two people who read the memo, the memo was part of a paper trail Mr. Comey created documenting what he perceived as the president's improper efforts to influence a continuing investigation. An FBI agent's Uh, uh, contemporaneous notes are widely held up in court as credible uh, evidence of conversations. Well, Mr. Comey shared the existence of the memo with senior FBI officials and close associates. I don't know when, if that was at the time, if it was after or since he was uh, let go. The New York Times has not viewed a copy of the memo, which is unclassified, but one of Mr. Comey's associates read parts of the memo to a Times reporter. So they haven't actually seen the memo. It was only read to them uh, by phone. Uh, I hope you can see your way clear to letting this go, to letting Flynn go, Mr. Trump allegedly, Mr. Trump rather, allegedly told Mr. Comey, according to the memo, he is a good guy. I hope you can let this go, end quote. Mr. Trump told Mr. Comey that Mr. Flynn had done nothing wrong, according to the memo. Mr. Comey did not say anything to Mr. Trump about curtailing the investigation, only replying, I agree he is a good guy. Well, in a statement, the White House denied the version of events in the memo, and while the president has repeatedly expressed his view that General Flynn is a decent man who served and protected our country. The president has never asked Mr. Comey or anyone else to end any investigation, including any investigation involving General Flynn, the statement said. Well, the president has the utmost respect for our law enforcement agencies and all investigations. This is not a truthful or accurate portrayal of the conversation between the president and Mr. Comey. Thus far, that's what we've heard from the White House. In testimony to the Senate last week, the acting FBI director, Andrew McGabe, Uh, He said there has been no effort to impede our investigation to date. So either he was unaware of the memo or the memo is not does not exist. Mr. McCabe was referring to the broad investigation into possible collusion between Russia and the Trump campaign. The investigation into Mr. Flynn is separate. So. He may have been referring to one rather than the other. A spokesman for the FBI declined to comment. Mr. Comey created similar memos, including some that are classified about every phone call and meeting he had with the president, the two people said. It is unclear whether Mr. Comey told the Justice Department about the conversation or his memos. Mr. Trump, as you know, fired Mr. Comey, and that controversy continues to swirl overhead. Uh, Last week, uh, Trump administration officials have provided multiple conflicting accounts of the reasoning behind Mr. Comey's dismissal. Mr. Trump said in a television interview that one of the reasons was because he believed this Russia thing was a made up story. A February 14th meeting took place just a day after Mr. Flynn was forced out of his job after it was revealed that he had, in fact, lied to the vice president, Mike Pence, about the nature of phone conversations he had with Russian ambassador to the United States. And despite the conversation between Mr. Trump and Mr. Comey, the investigation of Mr. Flynn has proceeded. In Virginia, a federal grand jury has issued subpoenas in recent weeks for records related to Mr. Flynn. Part of the Flynn investigation is centered on his financial ties to Russia and Turkey. And that goes beyond his role uh, in the uh, Trump administration. But as a general, uh, he has certain obligations of things that he cannot do. So beyond his uh, association with a, uh, a sitting president, their uh, concerns beyond that uh, and things that he knew he was not permitted to do as a, uh, a former member of the, the military.
Mr. Comey has been in the Oval Office, uh, had been rather, that day with other senior national security officials for a terrorism threat briefing. When the meeting ended, Mr. Trump told those present, including Mr. Pence and Attorney General Jeff Sessions, to leave the room except for Mr. Comey. So we do know that the meeting took place. What was said in that meeting Uh, We only know from the memo that has not been seen, but was read to a reporter for The New York Times over the phone. Alone in the Oval Office, Mr. Trump began the discussion by condemning leaks to the news media, saying that Mr. Comey should consider putting reporters in prison for publishing classified information, according to one of Mr. Comey's associates. Mr. Trump then termed the discussion to Mr. Flynn. And again, no one has yet seen the memo. Uh, We assume it exists and that it will at some point be made available. But this is what we know uh, up to this point. It's not clear uh, to me at this point if this would be a legal uh, this conversation, this request would be illegal if it would be obstructionist uh, to what level it rises in terms of inappropriate conduct on the part of a sitting president. But we will continue to follow that story as it develops. When we come back, we'll uh, talk a, a bit more about some of the controversies that have continued to develop uh, around the Trump administration. Fifteen minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 21 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're trying to sort through some of the controversies uh, out of Washington. We're going to switch gears and talk about some other things later in the program. We'll talk with uh, Becoming Home author Jed Medifind. He uh, is the author of the book on adoption, foster care, and mentoring, living out God's heart for orphans. We're also going to talk with Bruce Kling. Uh, Klingner, who specializes in uh, Northeast Asia at the Heritage Foundation as a senior research fellow. We're going to talk about the cybersecurity uh, breach that took place last Friday that uh, they're finding links to North Korea. There's still much work to be done, but it has all the uh, fingerprints, apparently, of previous attacks from North Korea. We'll talk with the stream's Rachel Alexander. She's a former Arizona assistant attorney general. We'll talk about the U.S. attorney general's uh, revised criminal drug charging policy. And Don Marie Perez will join us. She's executive director of Stand Up Girl Foundation. They have an event coming up this week, and we'll give you all the uh, all the details. We'll hear what some of the headlines have said about the controversy that has yet to be uh, resolved uh, around the uh, firing of, um, or rather, not the firing of uh, Comey. It's hard to keep all the controversy straight, but the uh, leaking of uh, classified information and the leaking of the fact that classified information was uh, re- revealed in a meeting with the president and the Russians. Now, the White House is disputing those facts, but this is what some of uh, the headlines are saying, beginning with the Washington Post, who broke the story from the beginning. They write that President Trump revealed highly classified information to the Russian foreign minister and ambassador in a White House meeting last week, according to current and former U.S. officials. Now, that's key, current and former U.S. officials, who said Trump's disclosures jeopardized a critical source of intelligence on the Islamic State. The information the president relayed has been provided by a U.S. partner through an intelligence-sharing arrangement considered so sensitive the details have been withheld from allies and tightly restricted, even within the U.S. government, officials said. Now, since this report came out yesterday, there has been one member of Congress who suggested that that information was linked to Israel. Israel made a statement that they are not concerned and this will not have any um, uh, impact on our relationship. Um, But again, we don't know for sure if it was Israel. 
Uh, Israel did make the statement, but I'm not sure that they even know. Then National Review, uh, Jonah Goldberg notes this. Even unsure yet if it's true, he writes, the idea that Trump, with his irrepressible need to boast to the point of narcissistic incontinence, combined with his lackadaisical approach to the nuts and bolts demands of the job, somehow just let something slip is utterly, completely believable. It was apparently believable to various members of his own administration. And then another uh, note from Lawfare, uh, a story from the deputy national security advisor, Dina Powell, has denied the story as false. Notably, National Security Advisor General H.R. McMaster limited his denial to the fact that at no time were any intelligence sources or methods discussed and no military operations were disclosed that were not already known publicly. Likewise, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson has denied disclosure of any information on sources, methods or military operations. These are both very carefully worded statements that leave open the possibility that classified information was disclosed other than sources and methods or that classified information was disclosed, which might be used as a basis to infer sources and methods not directly disclosed. Now, keep in mind, the president uh, can determine what is classified, what is not. It doesn't violate any statute or the law for him to uh, to to discuss classified information. The question is whether or not it was in the best interest of the country uh, in this case for whatever information was discussed uh, uh, with the Russians. Alan Dershowitz called it the most serious charge ever made against a sitting president. Well, I think that's a bit of hyperbole, but it certainly is a serious charge. And from Charles Krauthammer, who doesn't think this will hurt Trump in the long run, says that you have uh, you've got to ask yourself, why do the Russians keep turning up every three days in the Trump administration? It seems as if Trump was a recurring cold and the Ruskies or the Ruskies were involved in that. I mean, of, of all countries, it did. Um, it didn't have to be Russia. Uh, from David, uh, well, I'm not going to quote him, but from Chris Cizilza, um, uh, to date, Republicans have stood by Trump or at least stayed silent in the face of uh, his many foibles. But in a number of conversations Monday evening, the Republican House members, uh, uh, in, let's see, the Republican House members and GOP strategists, there was a widespread feeling that this time Trump might have gone too far. Um, uh, and uh, Trump uh, is criticizing others for leaking the classified information. That's not getting much traction. Democrats seem to be uh, enjoying this moment, as they have many before, sort of uh, self-inflicted wounds by the administration. And even Ann Coulter is starting to wonder about Trump, although that was expressed before this latest disclosure. Now, I was uh, particularly interested in a piece that uh, appeared in the Surgent um, Eric Erickson, who's been a guest on this show before, writing on Donald Trump and Russia, had this to say. I tend to take these stories about the president with a grain of salt. We have seen key details of a number of salacious stories retracted within 48 hours. The media hates the president so much that they'll run a negative story about him without very much provocation. Anti-Trump sources embedded within the administration and the career civil service, etc., will leak to the press and confirmation bias sets in. What sets this story apart for me, he writes at least, is that I know one of the sources, and the source is solidly supportive of President Trump, or at least has been and was during the campaign of 2016. But the president will not take any internal criticism, no matter how politely it is given. He does not want advice, cannot be corrected, and is too insecure to see any constructive feedback as anything other than an attack. 
So some of the sources are left with no other option but to go to the media, leak the story, and hope that the intense blowback gives the president um, a swift kick in, well, the backside. Perhaps uh, then he will recognize that he's screwed up. And I'm quoting, the president cares vastly more about what the press says than what his advisors say. This is a real problem, and one of his advisors are having... Uh, And one of his advisors are having to recognize and use, even if it causes messy stories, to get outside the White House perimeter. Now, in some of these cases, this could be a violation of the law. So this is a very risky business he's making reference to. But nonetheless, he goes on to write, I am told that what uh, what the president did is actually far worse than what is being reported. The president does not seem to realize or appreciate that this bragging can undermine relationships with our allies and with human intelligence sources. He also does not seem to appreciate that his loose lips can get valuable assets in the field killed. You can call these sources uh, disloyal, traitors, or whatever you want, but please ask yourself a question. If the president, through inexperience and ignorance, is jeopardizing our national security and will not take advice or corrective action, what other means are available to get the president to listen and recognize the error of his ways? This is a real problem, and I treat this story very seriously because I know just how credible, competent, and serious, as well as seriously pro-Trump, at least one of the sources is. Now, this is very compelling. And again, this is written by Eric Erickson, who is himself very credible, uh, has been a guest on this program. Uh, and that certainly is not <laughs> the measure of credibility. But nonetheless, I know something of him to suggest that he uh, he is a credible source. So there's a lot to um, to consider. Meanwhile, the White House says that Trump's uh, information sharing with Russia was wholly appropriate and rips the leaks, which is appropriate. Uh, leakers uh, should not be um, should not uh, go unpunished if, in fact, they violate the law. So the president is pushing back on the Washington Post report. He says he has absolute uh, right to share with Russia, which seems to contradict what was said by his national security advisor, suggesting that nothing untoward was done. So it's not entirely clear. Uh, Perhaps those who have uh, access to classified information and perhaps the details uh, can clear up the, the difference in the versions of the story that cannot be clear to those of us who aren't privy to the information and the level of uh, classified uh, detail that was, in fact, shared. So we'll continue to follow the story as much as is possible under these uh, very peculiar and difficult circumstances. Meanwhile, congressional Democrats are making early calls for Trump's impeachment. I'll have to add the word again. Uh, That began essentially on Inauguration Day. It didn't take long. A small group of uh, President Trump's most outspoken critics has seized on the James Comey controversy to make a very early push for impeachment. And that's just on the Comey controversy, not to mention the uh, Russian... uh, Information exchange or uh, the latest disclosure as well on um, on whether or not uh, the FBI director was asked to stand down. Again, these are stories that are very serious. We'll continue to follow them and provide as much detail that will help to clarify for the American people how serious these issues are um, and how well they're being reported. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to talk with Jed Medifind. He's the author of Becoming Home, Adoption, Foster Care, and Mentoring, Living Out God's Heart for Orphans. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 36 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My next guest says the greatest need of every orphan, every foster youth, every struggling parent, every human soul for that matter, is not merely to be tended, it is to be loved, to know that they are loved. 
That happens only if the little girl sees her eyes light up when she enters a room or when a single mother knows we're wholeheartedly present as she shares her story. And only if the juvenile delinquent hears tenderness and respect in the way we pronounce his name. Well, my next guest, Jed Medifind, is the executive director of Christian Alliance for Orphans and former head of the White House Office of Faith-Based and Community Initiatives under President George W. Bush. He is also the author of Becoming Home. It's a book that explores the challenges of adoption, foster care, and mentoring, and all the topics that are a clear part of the gospel message. Uh, He says that there are 150 million orphans in the world, and this number is growing due to war and displacement, and adoption in the U.S. is slow in spite of the needs. Inter-country adoption is down by 72%. God values human life, and caring for the less fortunate is part of his plan and design for his followers. The kind of love transforms not only the orphan, but also uh, those who open their hearts and homes to them. Well, he joins us today to talk about this uh, fascinating book and a great resource for those uh, who would like to consider becoming a foster parent or adopting. Jed Medifine, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, my pleasure, Georgine. Now, how did you get involved in the subject of adoption and foster care and caring for those who who need um, others to help them? Yeah, well, you know, I think like like everyone's story, God always weaves a lot of different threads together. And and for me, uh, one one part of that was my wife and I. Uh, we had five kids, but one came through adoption, and so she's just a just a constant reminder to us of the, of the blessings that that are in that. But I, I would also say that when I was working in the White House. A big part of my work had to do with issues related to vulnerable children and just encountering the both the heartbreaking stories of, of these kids, both in the U.S. and foster care and globally, but, but also the beauty scene when God's people step up and say, you know, this, this child right now does not have the love and protection of a family. We will be that for this child, maybe permanently through adoption or in other cases, temporarily as a mentor or a foster parent. And and when you see that happening, you say, wow, what a reflection of God's heart. I, I want to be a part of that. So that's that's been my story. And, and as I have, it, it really has confirmed to me uh, what what a privilege it is to be a little part of this. Mm-hmm. Now, I mentioned the, the number 150 million orphans in the world. And of course, that number is growing. That doesn't include foster children and so on. Help help us better understand the nature of the need, because a number can be overwhelming. It's difficult to imagine individuals and some of their stories. Yeah, that, that is so true. You know, I think when we look at the, the big picture, we, we can be paralyzed by just the vastness of the need. And that, go, go, of course, goes for so many different issues in the world. But, but really, ultimately, when you focus on the single life and you realize there's, there's one statistic that matters more than any other, and that is that it just takes one caring adult to change the life of a child forever. Uh, you know, I think of a, of a little guy in the foster system, or formerly in the foster system in the area where I live, he was brought in at age four. He could hardly walk. He actually could not speak because he had been actually left in a room um, by himself almost all of his four years with very, very little interaction with adults or other kids. And so he hadn't developed speech uh, or, or many other skills. And, and he was ultimately put into the foster system and brought into a loving family. And, and actually just about six months ago, he was over at my house and he was running around and, and jumping and he's, he's, his language is developing. He's able to express himself. And of course, there's still needs and it's not been easy for his, his family. And yet what a joy. They, they just, well, you know, when I asked them to tell me about this journey, every one of them, including the, the, the young siblings of this child, you know, they're just, their eyes lit up. And I think, you know, that, what a reflection of the way God has loved us, welcomed mm-hmm. us into his family to be a part of that with him. 
Is there a growing interest within the Christian community in adoption um, and orphan issues? There really is. You know, Georgine, it's, it's, on the one hand, we'd say it's nothing new. You know, Christians at their best throughout history have been known for this. Even in the, the times of the ancient Roman Empire, Christians earned a reputation for going outside cities and looking for children that had been abandoned there, which was a common Roman practice. And they would find these children and bring them in, and, and in some cases adopt them and raise them as their own. And, and so this has been a part of the Christian tradition all throughout the years. But, but over the past couple decades, we have seen more and more Christians, both in the U.S. and increasingly around the world, saying, you know, we, we really want to live out that pure religion that James describes as, as caring for orphans and widows in their distress. And so many of these people have chosen adoption. Others are foster parents or getting involved as mentors. And this is growing as a vision in many, many churches, including in the, the Seattle area. There are many churches there where, where there's a culture of adoption and foster care, where some of the families are fostering or adopting, but other families are wrapping around them and supporting them in that journey. And it just really, in my view, shows the world God's heart very visibly, saying this is the kind of thing that our God, our good Father, is all about, bringing the lonely into families, as it says in the Psalms. Now, some might assume that uh, government is better suited to meeting the needs of, of children. Um, can government meet orphans' needs, or do they desperately need the help of individuals and families? You've worked in the White House. You've worked in the California legislature. What's your perspective on the role of government in meeting the needs of children? Yeah, you know, government certainly can play an important, I'd say, vital role. And we can really affirm the hardworking people, both in law enforcement and, and social workers who are there seeking to protect children from harm. I think that's a, a God-given role for government, is what we you know, consider that justice role of protecting the innocent from harm. But, but you know, for a child to truly thrive, of course, they need much more than just to, to, to be protected from harm. They need love and nurture and belonging. And, of course, those are things that government cannot provide. Those are things that only come one loving relationship at a time in, in a welcoming home, in a, in a loving uh, parent who's, who's listening or willing to talk through hard things or give a hug when there's tears. And, you know, so those are things, of course, that, that government can't do. And that's why the Church simply can't outsource James 1.27 to government. We have this responsibility of, of being the, the welcoming homes, the welcoming arms that, that show these kids that they do matter. They matter to God, and that ultimately their life can be a life not only that, that survives, but ultimately that is a gift to many others as well. Tell us some of the most exciting things that are happening across the country uh, and around the world around the subject of adoption, of foster care, and mentoring. You know, I, I for me, Georgine, it always comes down to individual stories. I mean, I, I, I love the the ways in which I see it happening on a broad scale. If you go to some of these parts of the country, um, there's there's a, there's a county in Florida where every single child comes that's coming into the foster system in some way is touched by a loving Christian uh, adult, whether as a mentor or a temporary shelter or foster care um, or, or adoptive family. And so just, you know, seeing more and more kids just experiencing love through God's people on a broader scale, that's beautiful. But, but ultimately, when you boil it down to that individual story, I, I think of um, a, a young woman I got to know in, in Tennessee, and she had grown up in the foster system and, uh, you know, experienced many, many hard things, bouncing from home to home, as so many of those kids do. But ultimately, there was uh, a widow in the church that she had sometimes visited that brought her into uh, her home. And, and this young lady named Che lived with this widow 
through her high school years, and then even after actually she graduated, continued to live there. And the, the entire church community wrapped around her, and, and there was a lawyer that helped her with legal things, there was a teacher that tutored her, there was a mechanic that actually taught her to change the oil in her car, all these things. And, and so when she chose to get married, um, she wanted to get married in that same church that had just embraced her. And you know what was really neat, Georgine, was, was that you know, the, the church realized that she actually didn't have a father figure in her life to give her away when she walked down the aisle. Mm. And so when the pastor said, who gives this woman to be married to this man, the entire church congregation stood up at that point and said, we do. And I just feel like that's such such a beautiful picture, you know, of God's people becoming his arms, his hands, his feet for children that, that have been growing up without the love and belonging that that family provides. And, and uh, well, man, I just, just pray that more and more that's what God's people will be known for. Oh, absolutely. We're going to take a break because there's no crying in radio and you're going to make me cry. <laughs> make me cry. <laughs> so we'll take a quick break and be right back. Again, we're talking with, uh, with my guest, Jed Mine- uh, Medifind. He's the author of Becoming Home, Adoption, Foster Care, and Mentoring, Living Out God's Heart for Orphans. It's a tremendous resource to help you think through how you can be a part of that solution. Quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, continuing my conversation with Jed Medifine. He serves as president of the Christian Alliance for Orphans, or CAFO. They unite more than 150 respected organizations working together to inspire and equip believers for effective adoption, foster care, and global orphan care. Prior to this role, he led the White House Office of Faith-Based and Community Initiatives under President George W. Bush. He's worked, studied, and served in more than 30 countries and has written many articles for books, including the book we're talking about today, and that is Becoming Home, Adoption, Foster Care, and Mentoring, Living Out God's Heart for Orphans. Um, well, let's let's talk a little bit about um, adoption itself. When it comes to adoption, many people believe that um, it's best for children to be in homes that that reflect their ethnicity or their nationality. How important is that in matching a, a family with a, a child uh, that needs to be adopted? Yeah, that's a great question, Georgine. And I, you know, I, I on the one hand, I think it's important to affirm that that race does have significance in our lives. You know, when when a person is walking down the street, and whether it's we're just talking about skin color or we're talking about ethnicity and and background and, and habits and culture, those things aren't insignificant. And so if a parent adopts a child of another race, um, they, they need to, to take those things seriously and help prepare their child um, for engaging the world uh, in, in, in a unique way consistent with what, what they, you know, might experience differently because they have a different skin color than their parents, things like that. We can, we can say that for certain, but we can also say for certain that every child yearns for family. And if they are not going to experience a family in the, in the country or in the community in which they were born, why, just about every single orphan that I have spoken with, they say, I don't care what skin color the parent would have. I just want a mom and a dad. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so we can just stand firmly for family, first of all, even while we take issues of race and ethnicity seriously. Now, what are some of the fears that you hear uh, people express uh, about adopting or letting a foster child into their home? You know, I think the biggest one is just knowing that many of these children have experienced hurt, um, whether abuse or neglect, in the, before going into the foster system, or if we're talking about an orphan overseas, perhaps uh, abuse, or they've lived in an orphanage or on the street. And so 
they will have wounds. And so parents think, you know, would, would fear perhaps, you know, what will the implications of that be? And, and you know, will they come to love me? And will, will I feel towards them like I would feel towards my biological children? These are all natural questions, important questions, and, um, and, and I don't think they should be dismissed because we, we really do need to understand when a child has experienced deep hurt, then the, the healing process can be long, it can be involved, it's, it's something that we need to take seriously. And yet I will also say, Georgina, as, as I shared earlier, you know, I've seen so many precious children uh, blossoming in the love and care and belonging of a stable, loving family. And so I think we, we need to both take seriously the, the reality of those uh, challenges in, in bringing healing, and yet um, just celebrate together the way that God can work through love and belonging to bring deep healing. Mm. Now, you gave an example before the break of how the church can come alongside and be uh, a support to those who are orphaned. Um, and you emphasize that, the local church and caring for orphans in your book. Talk a little bit more about that and, and why and how that's important for uh, those who have been displaced, who haven't had a a family in the way that we we tend to think is is natural. Yeah. Well, you know, what one of the things we often say at the Christian Alliance for Orphans is is just that the the ultimate desire isn't just for one child to be wrapped around by a loving family, but for that child to be wrapped around by a family that's wrapped around by a church community. You know, and and as we were talking about just a moment ago, um, when a child has come from a place of, of hurt or trauma or severe neglect, you know, they're going to be carrying hurts with them, and so they're going to require a special amount of love and patience and nurture. And, and so for for that family that's wrapping around them to have the support of their church community can be invaluable on, on so many levels. And, you know, I'll tell you, Georgine, just from my own personal experience, about, about eight months ago, um, we were uh, called by our foster agency. They asked if we would take a, a newborn infant that had been um, exposed to drugs in utero. And we, we said yes, and, and um, we were very excited to receive this little guy. But um, one of the things was he was newborn. Our youngest child, we have five, but our youngest is, is five years old now. And so we had long since you know, gotten rid of baby clothes and diapers and, and all those vital uh, you know, tools and instruments that everyone has now for babies. And, and so um, we really needed some help. And what was great is our church heard about this, and people just started showing up with some bags of baby clothes and diapers and butt cream and, and a bassinet and, and some several different dinners. And, and we, we not only needed those things practically— we you know, we, we needed those things, but we also felt so loved and supported amidst the, the journey that had its highs and lows. Um, and to feel the church community in it, in it with us was just a, a gift beyond measure. Mm-hmm. You've, you've partially answered this question already. There is a role for those who cannot adopt or, or foster care. Absolutely. You know, we, we also love to say, um, you know, not every Christian is called to adopt, not every Christian is called to foster, but, but every Christian can play a role in living out the pure religion that, that includes caring for orphans and widows in their distress. And, and you know, as you said, just for, for me it's, and my wife and our family, it's been wonderful to see how supported and helped we've felt by uh, retirees who have helped run errands for us, um, by, by single people who've helped babysit, um, by just friends who brought over meals. And, and the same is true for, for so many other foster and adoptive families. I know I'm speaking with a woman who has several children with special needs 
when her uh, Sunday school, uh, the superintendent of the Sunday school program at her church met with her and said, hey, how can we do more to, to help your kids feel welcome at our church? That meant the world to her, and, and the way that a number of the Sunday school teachers did things to just to make sure that her kids who had special needs felt very welcome in those Sunday school classes, that was invaluable. So it, it really is something where the whole church together can embrace and receive these children and, and be God's hands together. In Becoming Home, you offer a what's something like a, a short crash course in how to engage in adoption, foster care, and mentoring. Um, uh, to do that wisely, give us a, a, a few ideas that they can expect in the book. Well, yeah, like, like you said, Georgine, the, the book is really just meant to be kind of a crash course, just mm-hmm. a simple um, overview for folks who you know may be considering adopting or fostering, or maybe it's a, a church staff or a volunteer who would like their church to become a very welcoming place for adoption, foster families, or, or or engage globally, you know, and, and work with churches in other parts of the world. So it's it's really meant to be simple and a quick read, but provide kind of some of the key overview elements there. Um, and I, you know, I think that there's a, of course a lot of different elements to it. But what, one of the pieces that I, I like to emphasize is to, to, that we really need to, when, when whenever we're encouraging people towards adoption or foster care, we need to speak of both the beauty and the brokenness. And and by that I mean, um, you know, adoption and foster care they mirror the gospel and the beauty of the gospel. You know, in the sense that God pursued us and embraces us and draws us into His family. That's our identity, and there's so much redemptiveness in that, and and that is true of adoption and foster care. And yet, um, the gospel story is also a story of thorns and and nails, and the great God pursuing us at great cost. And so, we need to talk about the challenging elements, the ways in which we'll need support along that way. We need to talk about how the church can play a vital role in supporting families, and and so that's you know one of the themes of the book is that we need to be really. Uh, forthright about the beauty and the brokenness of the journey, um, but also ultimately the joy of following Christ into the world's hard places and how we encounter Him there in a way that we probably couldn't anywhere else. Well, it's a wonderful resource. Again, uh, we're talking about the book simply titled Becoming Home, Adoption, Foster Care, and Mentoring, Living Out God's Heart for Orphans. Thank you so much for your work and for talking with us today. Uh, Thank you, Georgine. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. When we return, we'll talk with Bruce Klingner. He specializes in Korean and Japanese affairs as the Senior Research Fellow for Northeast Asia at the Heritage Foundation. Cybersecurity researchers said yesterday that they might be able to link North Korea to that massive global uh, global cyber attack last week. More on that when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we are back 22 minutes after 5 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part by Toyota of Vancouver. Last week, Attorney General Jeff Sessions released a directive announcing a rollback of the Obama administration's smart-on-crime sentencing. Well, critics say the rollback penalizes minor drug offenders and will overcrowd prisons. But my next guest says, according to that uh, New Stream article she has written as former Arizona Assistant Attorney General, uh, the policy will bring harsher, appropriate prosecutions to violent drug offenders, not peaceful drug offenders. Well, she joins us today to talk about that piece and her perspective on the Attorney General's uh, statement. Thank you so much for joining us, uh, Rachel Bovard or Rachel um, Alexander. Are you with us? I'm not uh, I'm not catching her. Clark, can you check? I've got her dialed in, but I'm not hearing her, so maybe you can check on that. Anyway, the uh, the article appears in the stream, and it deals with uh, uh, Attorney General Jeff Sessions scaling back this Obama-era criminal drug charging policy. 
We'll try again. Are you with us? I'm here. Do you hear me yet? <laughs> I can hear you now. Yes. Thank you oh, very good, much. Good, good, good. <laughs> well, as I mentioned, you are a um, former Arizona assistant attorney general, so you have a perspective on this that many of us may not. First of all, let's talk about what the uh, U.S. attorney general uh, did in revising the criminal judge char- uh, drug charging policy. Yeah. I, and, and by the way, I'm also a deputy county attorney where I was a prosecutor for Maricopa ah. County for four years. And I saw, you know, like hundreds, if not thousands of these criminal files. So, you know, basically what uh, Sessions has done is he says prosecutors need to just pursue the most serious, readily provable offense. He's directed all the, you know, U.S. attorneys across the country, you know, when it comes to federal crimes to do that. And in many cases, you know, it's going to be a crime that's going to put uh, somebody behind jail for many years. And the reality is, is this means it could be like a repeat offender statute. So, you know, you have multiple repeat offender uh, crimes that the person has done, and that ends up putting them behind bars for a long time. But it's not actually a drug crime. It's actually a repeat offender crime. And that's what a lot of these people are being, you know, put in prison for. Now, in 2010, the Attorney General Eric Holder um, told prosecutors they didn't need to, to seek out the most serious viable charges in every case. Now, how does what um, the former Attorney General said uh, to prosecutors, how does that differ uh, from what the current Attorney General is telling prosecutors? Yeah, I mean, basically what Holder said was, you know, you could just, you know, look for like a more lenient charge and you could just ignore like this repeat offender charge. And, you know, that way you could get out of like sentencing someone. But what Holder did is he he tried to make it look like um, he was just letting, you know, low-level drug offenders off the hook. And the reality is low-level drug offenders, peaceful, you know, drug dealers, they are never sentenced for merely, you know, uh, peaceful drug crimes. Um, they are always sentenced because you can Google any of the names of, you know, these people who they say were sentenced for, for drug crimes. And you can see, you know, they were always doing an armed robbery in the process of getting drugs. Or they were, it was, you know, again, like I said, the repeat offender, you know, that's why they were actually sentenced. Because, you know, after they, they were doing drugs and then they got caught with another felony. So it's, it's a complete misnomer, and like Steve Cooley, you know, the uh, former DA from Los Angeles County, you know, said once, nobody ever has served one day in incarceration for smoking pot. Hmm. Now, you're making reference to the names that we can Google. These are the names that the Obama administration commuted. There were about a 1,000 felons for drug crimes. Uh, he listed uh, felons... Um, uh, that he says were uh, minor offenses that did not invo- involve uh, any kind of violent behavior. Yeah, I will come right out and say he's lying. Um, if you read my article on the stream right now, I reference back an earlier article I did where I talked about all those felons that Obama had, you know, commuted the sentences of, saying they were minor, you know, drug offenses, and. Um, I could only, you know, find the names of a handful, but I included them in my article. And you Google their names, and you see all the violent crimes that they have also done, and which is why they really were sentenced. And um, for all those felons' names, I couldn't Google because the media, you know, could not discover information about them. I can tell you, as a former criminal prosecutor, um, those felons have rap sheets so long, and it would like take up this whole interview to tell you you know, why that stuff is not out there. But all that criminal history is not available to the public, and and the judge doesn't even get to see a lot of it. And a lot of these crimes that these, these felons do, it gets hidden and buried and not available to the public. Uh, and uh, uh, my whole point there was, 
was um, because the felon gets to plead down to something else. Or, like, the prosecution makes a mistake. Like, they lose a piece of paper. So the felon, like, gets out of all these crimes and gets sentenced for something else. So under the, the new rules, um, how much uh, discretion do prosecutors have? They still have quite a bit of discretion. Um, there was a, a woman I quote in my article, uh, uh, Sonia Starr, she's a University of Michigan law professor, who she says, you know, prosecutors still have a lot of discretion, even if Sessions, you know, puts this uh, former policy back in place. But, but the policy did have enough teeth that, you know, uh, more people were being incarcerated than they are under the Obama administration. Under the Obama administration, like, people being put in prison has decreased. And people are like, oh, that's great, we need less people in prison. You know what, if they're really just peaceful drug dealers, that's one thing. But they're not. The people being released are violent drug offenders, and their rates of recidivism, like the fact that they're going to commit another felony, is really high. Yeah, in fact, you uh, write that the uh, the types of violent drug offenders this policy affects have a 77% recidivism rate. Yeah, like who cares about the victims? Really? You don't care about the victims? Like it's all about it's all about looking good and sounding like, you know, we're just going to let these poor, peaceful drug offenders not serve time in prison. No. And I keep telling people, and I've been writing about this now for several years, okay? It's been since 2010 since I was a prosecutor. And I keep asking you, Give me one name of one person who was ever sentenced to incarceration for merely, you know, drug dealing. And in, it's been, what, seven years? I have not had one person give me one name of somebody who served a day, you know, behind bars for merely drug dealing. Now, does this also reinstate mandatory minimums? Well, I mean, that's what it's supposed to do. But again, you know, like that, you know, law professor pointed out, you know, prosecutors still get a lot of discretion. So mandatory minimums, they sound good, they have a little bit of teeth, but they're not as draconian and drastic as, you know, the opposition likes to make them look out to be. So um, he offers um, guidance to prosecutors around the country. Um, what happens next? What what difference might we expect to see? You know, I think we're going to see a lot less violent crime. I mean, the reason, you know, he changed the policy back to what it was underneath the Bush administration is because there was so much violent crime increasing in a lot of the major cities across the U.S. So I think we're going to see a decrease in violent crime. And, you know, the incarceration rate is probably going to go back up to what it was underneath the Bush administration. But it's going to be violent criminals. It's not going to be the ones, you know, that were being let out that have this, you know, 70 plus percent chance of committing another felony. Well, we'll certainly continue to uh, to watch what happens next. But this really is rolling back what was uh, uh, before 2010 when Eric Holder uh, changed the rules under the previous administration. And now we've gone back to the Bush administration uh, with maintaining at least some prosecutorial uh, discretion um, on a case by case basis. Yeah, and, and I, I just, I'm so sick of the media spin out there. They're like, oh, this draconian change by Sessions. No, it's not a draconian change. He's just reverting back to what was, you know, going on underneath the Bush administration. It's uh, nothing uh, different. It's not anything, you know, that's going to, like, you know, lock up and, like, so we can't afford all the felons in jail. We already had the felons in jail. This is just putting them back where they belong. All right. Hey, appreciate your taking the time to talk with us. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you. Again, uh, Rachel Alexander uh, is writing for The Stream and is a former Arizona Assistant Attorney General. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll talk with Don Marie Perez, Executive Director of Stand Up Girl Foundation. They've got an event coming up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
We're back 36 minutes after 5 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, StandUpGirl.com, we've talked about it here on the program. They're having a tremendous impact on young women in unplanned pregnancies, not only here at home, but all around the world. Well, they'd like you to take part in this life-changing, life-saving ministry. And there's an opportunity to do just that. Stand Up Girl is hosting their Portland Dinner Gala that's coming up on the 18th. So do the math. We're talking about a couple days from now at the Oregon Golf Club. Here to talk with us more about that is Don Marie Perez. She's the executive director of Stand Up Girl Foundation. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Georgine. It's great to be with you again. It is always a pleasure to have you with us. Now, I don't want to assume that all of our listeners are familiar with Stand Up Girl, so maybe we should begin there by just explaining uh, this amazing website that's having such an impact. Um, Well, Stand Up Girl is a website where we are reaching out to women who are in crisis pregnancies around the world. Um, We have several avenues that the girls can come to you for help to us um, via our website, social media. Um, They can be referred to us from a pregnancy center, and we refer back to a pregnancy center. And the idea is that um, a girl might be out on the Internet searching for information about if she's possibly pregnant. Maybe she's um, thinking, you know, I can't do this. My life is going to be forever changed. I think I need an abortion. And she's searching for information. And our goal is that she finds standupgirl.com and comes to the website and talks to our volunteers and our staff. And we get her connected with a pro-life or life-affirming pregnancy center right in her neighborhood. It really is an amazing thing because the Internet allows you to access girls all over the world. And that's not an exaggeration. It's it's pretty amazing when you see the map and how Stand Up Girl is impacting um, girls everywhere. I should mention that StandUpGirl.com has over 34.5 million visitors, seeing over 300,000 per month, along with another 295,000 visits per month on your Facebook page. So this is really, um, I would venture to say, one of the most effective pro-life outreaches in the world. You know, Georgine, God has just um, opened up so many doors for us to be able to reach out um, to abortion-minded women. And since inception in 2001, we've actually reached over 124.6 million women or young women could be boyfriends with a life-affirming message through our website and our social media sites. And that, to me, is just um, an astronomical number. It gives me chills to think that... Um, some 12 to 14 volunteers can be sitting at home on their computer waiting to help someone, and we've been able to reach over 124 million people with a message. It's absolutely incredible. And uh, I should mention that this, uh, this outreach originated right here in our community, so we have some ownership here. And uh, I, I'm grateful that there's an opportunity uh, to support this work, especially for people who are staunchly pro-life and want to be constructive in their, their outreach to those who are facing unplanned pregnancies. Now, tell us about the, um, the gala that's coming up on the 18th. Um, so this is our Portland gala, and it's um, one of our largest events of the year. And we have a special keynote speaker coming in. His name is Kirk Walden. And Kirk is um, right now an advancement specialist with um, Heartbeat International, and they're the world's largest supporting organization for pregnancy help communities. Um, he's a humorous, a writer, and even a one-time professional golfer, and he's coming to share a message with our guests um, about the importance of stand-up girl and the impact that we're making around the world and why we need partners to come alongside of us to help um, our reach grow. We know every year we're reaching more and more 
Women in Need, in, in the first five months of this year, we've already reached out to 2.1 million girls. And Kirk is here to share that message and help us um, become more partners with more people in our community and around the world that can help us continue to reach out to these girls in need. Now, um, you are holding this event in Portland. You hold similar events around the uh, around the state. Um, the event that's coming up, I, the 18th is Thursday. Is that right? Do I have that right? That's correct. Yeah, on Thursday. Is it still possible for listeners to, to take part? Yes, and if someone is interested, we still have seats available and um, tables that are, have some openings. They can contact us by calling 503-304-1531, or they can email us at ejspillman at standupgirl.com. And is that with two L's, Spillman? Yes, it is. Okay, ejspillman.org or com, I'm sorry. At- I'm sorry, at standupgirl.com. Okay, at standupgirl. There you go. Excellent. Well, I've had an opportunity to attend the event, and in fact, I would be there this year if I didn't have a, a conflicting uh, um, commitment. But one of the things I've appreciated about the uh, the banquet is to gain a, a, a broader perspective of all that Stand Up Girl is doing. It's it's such a simple thing, and yet it's having such tremendous impact. It really boggles the mind at uh, how effective it, it makes the um, Crisis Pregnancy Center or Pregnancy Resource Center movement in um, helping girls to find them and giving them the opportunity to minister to them. So if you're supportive of the Pregnancy Resource Centers, this is a, a supplement that really is making a difference for them and helping um, these girls to find them and get the help that they desperately need. Uh, again, the event is coming up this Thursday, 6 o'clock p.m. at the Oregon Golf Club in West Lynn. And if you'd like to come, and I would encourage you to do that, the phone number is 503-304-1531. Again, that's 503-304-1531. You can also email ejspillman at standupgirl.com. EJ Spillman, two L's. E.J. Spillman at StandUpGirl.com. Well, I just want to uh, thank you for the work that you and others are doing uh, 24-7. And you're hearing from girls literally all over the world um, who have questions, who are looking for help, and you are providing um, what they so desperately need out of uh, love for them, their unborn children, and out of a heart for for Jesus. And I I appreciate so much your work. Thank you, Georgina. We just appreciate you giving us the time and the support that you've given us over the years. Oh, absolutely. I I absolutely do support what you're doing. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks. Have a great day. God bless you. You too. Bye-bye. Again, Don Marie Perez is the executive director of the foundation, Stand Up Girl Foundation, and the event is uh, coming up this Thursday at the Oregon Golf Club in West Lynn, uh, 6 o'clock p.m. There's a a dinner, a gala. It's going to be a wonderful time with a great speaker, and you can call and say, yes, I want to come and learn more at 503 304-1531, or you can email ejspillman at standupgirl.com. Great, uh, great ministry. And uh, again, one of the things I appreciate about the banquet is uh, having a visual um, presentation that gives you the the map of the world and lets you see where they're reaching girls. And in fact, if I remember last year, you had an opportunity to see where calls were being made, where information was being exchanged in real time. So we could see in Dubai, there's a girl who's uh, trying to find out something that she needs, or you could see somewhere in China or somewhere in India. And it's just fascinating to imagine that there are people right here in the 
in the state of Oregon who are answering those questions and responding to those needs. So if you'd like to learn more, uh, the uh, gala is a great opportunity to do that coming up this Thursday. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back to wrap things up on this extraordinary day, as we've discussed earlier in the program, things uh, unfolding that we never could have anticipated, but hope we can get to the bottom of sooner rather than later. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. Final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Did you remember that today, May the 16th, is Election Day? Portland voters, uh, as well as others around the uh, area, uh, are going to consider whether to pony up hundreds of dollars a year to fund the biggest school bond in the city's history. Did you turn your ballot in? You have until 8 p.m. tonight to do so, to either say yes or absolutely not. That's just one of the measures on the May ballot. Lake Oswego, Mount Hood Community College. Also, they want millions for renovations, and voters are going to weigh in on school board elections in every district, uh, district rather, taxes for short-term rentals, and giving a city official more independence. Not every measure is going to appear on each ballot. It depends on what county you're in, only the ones that fall within your district. Uh, So um, these are important matters, and if you haven't yet uh, filled them out, your ballots I'm referring to, and taken them now to an elections office, it's too late to to mail them. It's not like the IRS where you have until midnight to get that into the the mail. You have to, uh, at this point, literally uh, deliver them to the county election office in your area, and they have drop boxes in various places uh, as well. You can look that up, but uh, you have until 8 o'clock p.m. tonight to weigh in. Now, if you fail to cast your ballot, you really can't complain. If you were opposed to the $790 million Portland school bond uh, and it passes, on the other hand, if you um, are uh, in favor of it and it fails, you can't really complain. Um, This is uh, the result of some five years of uh, work that Portland uh, voters approved back in, um, well, I should say five years ago, Portland voters approved what was then a record $482 million bond, and this has been building uh, since then. And now there's another $790 million uh, bond on that ballot. So these are important issues. And again, you have until 8 o'clock p.m. to drop your ballot off at the uh, county elections office. Well, tomorrow on the program, um, I am going to be absent. Um, I'm going to be at a medical appointment with my husband. He and I thought it was important that we were both there. And if you think of it, without my going into detail, if you'd say a little prayer, we're making sure things are functioning as they should. Um, uh, I'll just leave it at that at this point. So I'm going to be away from uh, from the studio. Uh, but we are going to share a conversation I had earlier today with Myron Ebel. He's the director of the Center for Energy and Environment. He's going to explain the Paris Climate Agreement and why he and others are suggesting that the uh, president withdraw and require that the Senate give an up or down vote in favor of or in opposition to that uh, climate agreement. That's what the Constitution requires, even though under the previous administration, we sort of inadvertently signed on and all of the commitments um, that are attendant to it. So we're going to talk with him about why he thinks that's important. And he and uh, another um, author um, did a letter to the editor uh, in response to an opinion piece that was submitted by a member of Congress uh, suggesting that we really should um, approve this thing and we should allow it to stand because that gives the United States a uh, place at the table where we can influence the direction that it ultimately takes and carve out a space for fossil fuels. So they are responding to that piece and um, uh, suggest that that is not a, a tenable response, given the fact that there really is no room, given the structure and the content of that agreement, for any 
um, real substantive uh, input. So anyway, we're going to share that conversation with you tomorrow, even though it took place earlier today. Uh, Otherwise, we're going to share some of uh, the better uh, interviews from earlier this and last week. So um, I'll be back in studio on Thursday. And on that day, I'm looking forward to talking with a local ministry, Life Impact Ministries. They are Oasis hosts, my guests. And what that means is if you are a pastor or someone who is in full-time ministry, and either you have uh, suffered a a great uh, challenge in the ministry and need a period of respite, uh, or you are um, just exhausted. Maybe there's a, a, a season in which you need to step away at something of a short-term sabbatical, uh, but need a place where you can um, get the rest and uh, peace that you need in a setting that is conducive to that kind of uh, need. Or if you're seeking direction and you need a place to just go where you can spend time in prayer and reflection and listen to what the Lord has to say, that is what this Oasis ministry does. And my guests, Harold and Kimmy Otterly. Um, They are hosts, and uh, they are with Life Impact Ministries in the Portland area. So we're going to talk more about uh, what they do and uh, the the ministry that's extended to those who serve in ministry. I'm so grateful for this kind of outreach, because when you think about the tremendous burden, and I mean this in the most possible, the most um, favorable way possible, but the burden of shepherding a flock of believers, um, there's a tremendous amount of pressure to doing that. Not that the uh, the weight of the whole church rests on the shoulder of the shepherd, but uh, there are great ex- expectations heaped on uh, the individual who pastors and the family that's associated with that uh, that minister of the gospel. And uh, there's also great um, uh, opposition, if you will, from the one who would like to see everyone called to ministry and leadership uh, fail. Uh, so for for those who are called to that ministry, who are called to serve as Jesus served, um, rather than to lord uh, their position over others, there's a tremendous cost to that. And I appreciate that oh, this uh, Life Impact Ministry recognizes that cost and, and recognizes the need for a time to step away and uh, find refreshment or a time of reflection. So we're going to talk with Harold and Kimmy Otterly about that on Thursday. And you can look them up, Life Impact Ministries. They are Oasis hosts, and that's the right word to describe Uh, what they provide for those in ministry. And then on Friday, assuming that the Republic still stands, and that's questionable at this point, uh, we're going to lighten up and uh, enjoy some time looking at the lighter side of the news. We began the program talking about a couple of breaking stories that are very serious indeed. Are they as serious as some make it out to be? We don't know. Are they as insignificant as others would suggest? We don't really know. We know that there are some serious allegations that have been made. Um, whether or not they are the violation of law, if it's a matter of um, uh, of incompetence, uh, we're still learning. And, uh, for example, the uh, uh, the New York Times suggested that the FBI director uh, had uh, written a memo at the time uh, in February that he and the president met and suggested in that memo that the president asked him to drop uh, the investigation into uh, one of his uh, uh, cabinet members who had been dismissed, if you will. Uh, it's not clear if that is a breach of the law uh, or if it's a lesser uh, offense or if that's um, fully expected. We don't really know what happened. No one has seen the memo, including the New York Times that reported on it. But an associate of the FBI, the former FBI director, apparently read excerpts of it over the phone to a New York Times reporter. 
Now, I'm not sure that's the best way to report a major story without having seen the document and verifying that it is, in fact, uh, a document from the former FBI director. But it's a very serious charge and should be taken seriously as that develops. Uh, All of that to say that as the controversies continue to build and develop in Washington, it certainly gives us opportunity to remember who ultimately sits on the throne and that those who rise and fall only do so as God allows, and that we have access to the throne of grace to pray for those who are in positions of authority. It's not a matter of whether or not they keep their position or they succeed personally, but whether or not they are acting on behalf and in the best interest of the country. So I would encourage you to uh, to pray for what's happening in Washington, that this would be less partisan and more an effort to arrive at the truth uh, so that um, the appropriate response uh, can follow. Well, I want to thank Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, James Blend for producing, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.